Book Two, Chapter Two of The Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At last the Howlands were settled in their new home, and the results of Alison's pains were amply justified. No more delightful tete a tete nest could have been found in all New York. Just right for two, just room enough for two. Phil kept repeating with such frequency that Alison wondered at his insistence. No apartment can hold a family of more than two, he assured her. The new life was odd but interesting. The restaurant dinners came really to be the great events in the days of the young wife. They varied tremendously. Sometimes Phil would insist on eating at one of the most expensive of the big hotels, saying that he felt like it and that he had the price. At other times he and Allison contented themselves with thirty-five-cent meals at the cheapest of eating-houses, and it was apparent that Phil realized that economy was necessary. Allison wondered at the extremes that they struck. The same outlay could easily have been made to cover a more average and comfortable life, one with less exalted heights and less abysmal depths. But geniuses are admittedly mercurial. The young bride explained affairs to herself on the theory that their finances depended on some editor paying up. Phil must be selling stories, or receiving pay for those already sold. But she wondered why he didn't show them to her, and why he discouraged discussion about them. Then, too, where were such future windfalls to come from? To Alison's intense surprise, her husband didn't get down to work at all. She had supposed that the moment they were settled he would begin a regular routine of daily writing in the cosy study on which she had spent so much thought and pains. But not at all. Phil's habits were sufficiently erratic to warrant him a rank in the very highest rows of geniuses. He never rose till very late, and he slopped about all morning in pajamas and dressing-gown, often with bare feet thrust into loose slippers always with a cigarette hanging from his lips. Baths were not daily occurrences with him. All this was horrible to the girl he had married. There never was a trigger, trimmer household than the one at St. Mary's Rectory. Everyone there was as neat in the morning as the proverbial new pin. What made matters worse, Phil looked exceedingly unattractive in dishabille. Most men do one wonders why, when it is becoming to so many women. Thus Phil lounged through luncheon and the early afternoon. Then he sometimes went out and sometimes stayed in. Of course, he took Allison out to dinner and sat at home with her for an hour after their return. But he soon grew restless and, after wandering about a bit, took his hat and said he guessed he'd go out. It was always to see the fellows. Sometimes he was back at midnight, sometimes not before three o'clock. His wife had her choice between an early bed or a lonely evening with a book. When once she had discovered the resources of Phil's library, however, and the whereabouts of the public libraries, these evenings ceased being lonely. Of course it was different on theater nights. They were quite frequent. Friends sent Phil tickets, and he and Allison always used them. On those occasions Phil would take his wife home after the performance and then go out again alone. The pieces at the theaters proved very instructive. Alison learned more about life from them than she had ever learned from her own mother. 
but the lesson was frequently presented in a distorted way that sickened her she acquired the habit of begging off from those plays which were distasteful to her unfortunately these were invariably the ones that phil liked best he always pronounced them either subtle or strong nevertheless the lure of the great city was beginning to make its appeal to alison's quick sensibilities she formed the habit of leaving phil in bed or lolling around the house while she wandered out to explore the contrast between fifth avenue and sixth avenue struck her as a marvel first the great avenue of luxury of wonderful shops and sumptuously clad wayfarers of equipages and restaurants where the price of a meal for two would be ample to feed many a family of six for a week then but one block distant the street of cheap shops and cheaper shoppers with its roaring writhing demon of an elevated track whose trains thundered above the hurrying crowds and turned the place into bedlam looking at the hatless italian women on lower sixth avenue and in washington square and at the foreign male faces in the seething noonday crowds alison began to wonder where the real native new yorkers were to be found not in the twenty-eighth street boarding-house its guests were all strangers to the city and its landlady came from new jersey not in the mobs that thronged the cheap streets not judging from voice and accent behind the counters in the big shops she decided that one must enter their homes to find them she loved the park and the museums and libraries church though she went every sunday always turned her heart heavy with homesickness not having a pew she was forced to stand at the back until the service was well advanced she was a stranger in a strange land and she felt it she who had been the friend of every worshipper at st mary's it is a strange thing how a big city knows when sunday comes the streets look different footsteps echo hollowly every sight every sound makes the stranger within its gates realize his strangeness ten times more acutely the sabbath was made for homes and homes for the sabbath before many weeks phil's friends began to drop into the apartment and it didn't take them long to become habitues small wonder either it was a very different interior from those they had left behind them the howland's big living-room was charming comfortable livable appealing not a chair in it was uninviting not a light was improperly placed or shaded it was furnished but not cluttered orderly but not stiff most of the men who came to it came from shabby flats some of them kept house together others had installed in their apartments blousy bewrappered slatterns who bloomed into costumes and rouge only when public appearance warranted such effort still others shared expenses with working girls who went out early and came home late it was not remarkable that these men flocked to the howland's delightful room with its graceful well-dressed hostess and her unfailing hospitality there were two things that began to trouble alison seriously at this time one was the permeating odor of stale tobacco smoke in which she lived and the other was much more serious it was the ease with which whiskey came perpetually to flow in her home 
Once and once only did she voice her objections. Her husband's answer was to go out and get regularly drunk. He staggered in, during the wee hours, to fall in a sodden heap in the living room. Alison had never before been near a drunken man. She hoped never to repeat the experience. It was the most disgusting and nauseating that she had ever lived through, and more than any other one thing it disillusioned her. But it taught her a lesson. She learned that it was better to coax Phil to stay at home and to watch him than to drive him out of her sight. She began to realize that, though he was not yet a drunkard, he had the exact temperament to develop into one. Nagging, or trouble, or laziness, or discouragement, or any one of a dozen things might be the force that would give the final shove necessary to send him and his brilliant weakness tottering over the edge of the abyss. Truly, Alison Howland's education was progressing with marvelous rapidity. Even after their house became a daily rendezvous, her husband continued to leave her in the late evenings. He either went with the fellows, or to see the fellows. But though he returned late, he returned sober. Phil's friends were a motley throng. Of them all there were two who were the most constant visitors. One of these was an attractive fellow named Ferris. Alison could never quite understand his presence in the circle. He was well-born, well-connected, and rich. One would imagine him living in bachelor apartments with a Jap servant and going out in the world of fashion. Phil was cultivating him assiduously, and evidently with the idea of grinding some future axe. Her husband sighed Alison could well understand. It was Ferris's that puzzled her. Art was offered in explanation. But she wondered. It was certainly an art which left its votaries very free to dawdle and squander. The Howland's other constant visitor was Phil's most intimate friend. His name was Kepner, Al to his familiars. To him Alison took an immediate, consuming dislike which, for Phil's sake, she tried her best to hide. It was not only because of his physical appearance, though that was certainly against him. He was fat and bull-necked, and growing prematurely bald. His hands were horrible, pudgy cushions of flabby white flesh with stubbed finger-ends, and his voice was raucous. But quite apart from all this, Alison tried not to be influenced by externals, she hated his views, and she hated, without understanding them, certain of his glances which she sometimes caught on looking up suddenly. Kepner's eyes were habitually carried half-shut, but they occasionally flashed on his pretty hostess a veiled gleam that made her hot and uncomfortable. On the other hand, he was an undoubtedly brilliant man with a well-stored mind, a keen wit, and a ready tongue. He had read everything and written much. Under an assumed name, he was one of the best-known and most widely quoted dramatic critics of the day. He was also the source of the Howland's theatre tickets. One of Alison's earliest discussions with him arose one evening when he quoted Nietzsche. Kepner, by the way, was an arrogant atheist. Nietzsche says, he began in his overbearing way, 
that the christian religion is the most immoral of creeds it inculcates pity and tenderness and thus enervates and feminizes its followers virility is the one desirable personal trait increase of power and dominion the only national ideal and christianity undermines them both he talks like a turk or a mongolian said alison they are without compassion exactly and they are right right absolutely right suddenly alison realized how oriental was his own appearance that his attitude towards women would be equally so she felt sure another time they had a red-hot argument on the subject of freedom isn't this a free country demanded keppner sneeringly and if it is hasn't a man the right to free speech it is a free country replied alison certainly but that fact doesn't give you the right to walk into a man's house and take his money nor to abduct his wife nor to corrupt the morals of his children those morals you should no more assail outside his house than under its roof because a man's children are more valuable than his money therefore you have not a right to untrammeled freedom of speech and where does my freedom come in where no one but yourself is concerned it does not permit you to cast falsely damaging aspersions on another's reputation and it gives you the assurance that no one may cast any such on yours you are protected by the same law that holds you in check but if i think a thing am i not free to say it she shook her head not necessarily why not because of others if it were a necessary choice wouldn't you rather think a bad thing than do it no that is cowardice the fear of punishment it is not it is the protection of others your evil thought can harm no one but yourself your evil act cannot possibly be so detached example alone would make it more far-reaching public decency is more important than personal freedom i have often heard my father say that many people are unable to distinguish between freedom and license at that last word she caught again that strange gleam from his eyes the look that she so hated and she pulled herself up short i often tell phil continued keppner that we are all too damned fair-minded we are so afraid of not playing fair to the other fellow that we make ninnies of ourselves as he spoke there flashed into alison's mind the picture of a sunset beyond snow-clad hills of a man and a girl walking across a white expanse the girl eagerly drinking the while the wisdom that flowed from her companion's lips fair-mindedness he had told her was the curse of the age he had robed the thought in pretty garb very different from keppner's blunt language he had expanded it into quite a theme but apparently it wasn't his own still we all get thoughts from others that is we get occasional ones but it would be tragic if we never contributed to the general fund phil's idle days drove his wife almost distracted she would coax him into his study and up to his desk she would cajole and entreat but all to no end hang it all al you can't force inspiration he always said fretfully and the word held her up 
had he said ideas he would have been nearer to speaking the truth and she to understanding it but it wouldn't have sounded so well supply phil howland with a framework of ideas and no one could dress and adorn it more exquisitely than he words were his gift but thoughts unfortunately were another matter and he was deliberately choosing a sort of life that would not be likely to supply his deficiency his wife could have supplied it amply had she guessed its existence her busy brain was a whirl with ideas phil did an occasional bit of unsigned hack writing but it never made much of a hit his critiques and reviews were always caustic and biting but their animus gave the reader an impression of personal venom rather than of any warrant for it in the subjects that he attacked it was as though a chronic dyspeptic should find fault first with the sun and then with the shade do you never praise phil asked his wife when i find anything to praise he answered surlily the classics now oh yes those of course but i mean living writers do none of them please you as a matter of fact the thing that piqued him most was the success of his contemporaries this was odd considering his own two successes as a rule happiness can afford to be kind but then phil howland's hits had been made a number of years ago he had done nothing since to follow them up he was very anxious to get a job like keppner's and was sure he could adorn it a certain big newspaper syndicate had such a position in its giving and the most important man in the syndicate was a friend of ferris this was the secret of the assiduity with which phil cultivated ferris one day alison said musingly isn't it odd i never speak to a woman any more her husband threw her a queer quick look that is your own fault he replied my own fault how well you have such stiff ideas there are lots of nice girls that you might know there are of course lots of nice girls in new york but how could i know them oh i'm not speaking of the girls in what is known as society they are all damned snobs but if you weren't so all-fired particular you could have all the women friends you wanted phil what do you mean just what i say take ferris for instance he has the sweetest little friend you ever saw has her where in his apartment in his apartment what relation is she to him don't be a fool al the usual relation of course after one incredulous moment alison understood she couldn't fail to understand her husband had purposely made his meaning so clear without a word she turned and went out of the room and into her bedroom putting on her wraps she went into the street and walked walked feverishly without a thought of where she was going so that was the sort of companionship proposed to her by her husband he her natural protector friendship with a class of women of whose existence she could no longer remain in ignorance and it was men like that whom he went out to see night after night a pleasant circle truly Gertrude and her husband were due in New York in late November, just in time to get them back to Coningsboro for Thanksgiving. Alison was to meet them at the pier, and to lunch with them before they left town. 
no word was said of phil accompanying her but she understood that and so did he the two sisters almost fell into each other's arms gertrude and kenneth were the pictures of happiness they had spent a perfect summer and were more in love with each other than ever oh allie said mrs rawle when her husband had left them to attend to the luggage there never was any one in the world like him you know how i used to care for money and clothes and things like that well dear if kenneth hadn't a penny it would be just the same to me i'd follow him anywhere i'd leave the whole world to be with him i'd crawl on my hands and knees to the end of the earth if necessary to get to him oh dearest isn't love wonderful isn't it said alison gertrude looked at her quickly ally she said you're happy aren't you tell me the truth is it all right certainly it's all right you foolish child i was never capable of rhapsodies you know and of course one has to get adjusted in a new life there are always some shocks gertrude's heart turned cold when one is happy one isn't likely to speak unconsciously of new experiences as shocks a nasty little fear crept into her mind but just then kenneth the incomparable returned and they hurried off to the motor at luncheon there was so much to tell and to ask that the time flew europe was wonderful alison must certainly see it gertrude dashed from name to name each one suggesting another wouldn't she love paris ken and london but i think you'd like paris better ally i did it's so gay and sparkling and everyone seems so happy and vivacious london is impressive and wonderful but it is so much more serious it's grayer and then the smaller cities i loved bruges better than any of the others but switzerland would simply drive you crazy you must see it no pictures can give you any idea of that scenery i longed for you at each new town lucerne was simply heavenly wasn't it ken mustn't ally see it soon and so she rattled on what about aunt juliette asked alison oh she's wonderful a mondaine to her fingertips she loaded me with presents and sent you and elsa each a trinket i'll send yours after i get home aunt juliette is over sixty you know but she is still courted and fated and even made love to and she demands it absolutely she couldn't live without it her house is a perfect palace you must see it some day and she agrees with me that i have found the most wonderful treasure in the world interrupted rawle gertrude looked at him with her heart in her eyes and blushed actually blushed at his praise after half a year of married life alison's eyes grew tender and wistful as she watched them gertrude was swathed in sables and her fingers flashed with gems but it was easy to see that they made the least of her happiness alison bade them good-bye with tear-wet lashes she loaded them with loving messages for coningsboro and its dwellers her own thanksgiving dinner was eaten at a hotel where decorations and music strove to replace home ties it was a vain mockery the holiday spirit is not purchasable 
although gertrude's short visit was never mentioned between the howlands the knowledge of it rankled with phil his own break with rawle aside he knew well that in their heart of hearts none of the terrys liked him disapproval always stung him he wanted to kick back i suppose you'd enjoy travelling he said to his wife one day better than anything in the world she answered i long for it you know i've scarcely done any of it naturally your parents are not unique they have every reason for sticking to coningsboro most persons would rather patronize their inferiors than be snubbed by their superiors superiors flamed alison what do you mean by that my parents have no superiors really i congratulate them and he dropped the subject with a smile of sarcasm that very afternoon brought an invitation from alison's cousin mrs bleecker gansevoort she wrote that she had been intending to hunt up the howlands but had so far been prevented as she was so much older than they and a relation as well wouldn't they waive ceremony and dine at her house the following friday at eight o'clock alison was delighted she felt that she would once more be among persons of her own class and she knew that her mother would welcome news of cousin mary whom she had not seen for years phil on the other hand pretended to be bored at the thought of the dinner but his wife was almost sure that that was a pose he showed a surprising concern about his clothes should he wear a dinner jacket or a tail-coat a white tie or a black did al think that silk waistcoat looked fresh enough and so on he insisted on a carriage though the distance was slight and the night clear and balmy i'm not going to have those damned flunkies looking down their noses at me he explained the damned flunkies would have been warranted in their imaginary superciliousness as alison presently discovered they served in a very gorgeous establishment the moment the howlands entered its portal phil began to be self-conscious he was afraid both that he might do something awkward and that he might not be properly appreciated in a word he was out of his element and he knew it as a matter of fact his tall stooping slouch and hectic personality had never appeared to less advantage than in that drawing-room alison on the other hand fitted perfectly into the picture it was natural that she should she felt more at home than she had since leaving coningsboro mrs gansevoort greeted her warmly just think how long it has been since i have seen you she exclaimed not since you were a little girl of seven i am so anxious to hear all about your dear mother and here are some other cousins whom you don't even know bleecker this is the little alison of whom i have been telling you and this my dear is your husband i suppose mr howland mr gansevoort this alison is your cousin kathleen and this is my son-in-law mr mortimer kathleen may i present mr howland mr howland mr mortimer we are just a family party to-night i thought it would be so much nicer to have time to get really acquainted than to bother with a lot of outsiders this of course was only partially true mrs gansevoort was much too clever to risk unsuccessful parties she knew that elizabeth terry's daughter would be entirely all right the moment she saw the girl she knew it doubly 
but her cousin's letter had made mrs gansevoort wonder a bit about the new son-in-law the moment she saw him she wondered no more she knew although it was a family party it was a beautiful one alison seated between her host and his son-in-law was perfectly happy it was long since she had felt so carefree do you know she said to mr gansevoort i believe you are the first real new yorker to whom i have ever spoken and i he laughed was born in albany and lived there till i was grown up your cousin mary as you know was a baltimorean and kathleen was born in england billy you can claim new york birth can't you yes answered mr mortimer turn your gaze on me mrs howland for i am the rara avis whom you seek at this moment alison heard mrs gansevoort say are you in business in new york mr howland i am a writer he answered curtly his wife knew from his voice that the question had piqued him of course replied their hostess quickly how stupid of me to have forgotten but her unfortunate ignorance had fanned phil's slumbering resentment into flame he was in one of those moods that made him take exception to anything that was said he disagreed with everyone he was entirely conscious of the unpleasant impression he was making and he proceeded to justify it by every means in his power and then to resent it he announced himself as a socialist an agnostic and a bohemian and he drank as much champagne as all the rest of the guests put together the other members of the party being what they were phil's bald jibes were smoothly received and the conversation continued to flow without a ripple but alison's pleasure was ruined she could no longer give herself up to her own enjoyment she was forced to keep her mind on her husband and to try to palliate his lapses however a number of charming things were the outcome of that dinner the one that most pleased alison was that cousin mary begged her to make use of the gansevoort pew at st timothy's i'm afraid you'll have it all to yourself my dear we have grown to be shockingly careless churchgoers your cousin bleecker and i almost always go out to the country place for the weekends and these bad children of mine are golf mad they spend every sunday at some country club but it is a beautiful service at st timothy's and you will do me a favor by making use of the pew i am ashamed to think how seldom it is occupied salvation by proxy laughed mrs mortimer are you fond of music alison oh devotedly i have never heard much good music though well billy and i are savages but truthful savages you know we abhor everything but ragtime we go to the opera in the evenings because one has to but if you'll use our box for the afternoon performances you will do me a charity and i have some symphony concert seats that i shall be only too glad to get rid of nor was this all countless times that winter were the gansevoort and mortimer carriages and motors put at alison's disposal frequent invitations did she receive to both houses but always to luncheon or tea and always alone how could she was the only comment of alison's cousins after her departure the evening's aftermath was much more uncomfortable on the howland's side 
it was introduced by phil and conducted entirely by him but because of it his wife cried herself to sleep end of book two chapter two